Research practice partnerships, otherwise known as RPPs, are really important. Just like in any other field, good researchers are constantly thinking about how to bring relevance and purpose to their research. RPPs make strategic partners out of researchers and practitioners to dig into what the field needs to know in the present and closely study what's working and what's not. Ugh, that word practitioner sounds so clinical. Anyway, guests from Hive Research Lab, New York University, and UC Irvine discussed the recently published Toolkit for Brokering Youth Pathways, available online at hiveresearchlab.org. Educators can access a series of what they're calling practice briefs for youth programs to help realize promising and sometimes less promising methods for leveraging youth participation for the purpose of building connections between too often disparate learning experiences. Dr. Rafi Santo is a learning scientist focused on the intersection of digital culture, education, and institutional change. His work is centered around research practice partnerships. Dr. Dixie Ching is a senior user experience researcher at Google, where she supports education-related products and services through strategic research and partnerships, and she was a co-founder of Hive Research Lab. Dr. Chris Hoadley is an associate professor in the Educational Communication and Technology Program, the Program in Digital Media Design for Learning, and the Program on Games for Learning at New York University. And Dr. Kylie Pepler is an artist by training, associate professor of learning sciences at UC Irvine, and engages in research that focuses on the intersection of arts, computational technologies, and interest-driven learning. Seriously? There's about 100 years of experience in research here. This is a great place for me to mention how much I appreciate your subscription to the podcast wherever you downloaded it. Like, rate, review. It means a lot to me. Enjoy the episode. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Guys, thank you so much for joining. Uh, I'm really excited to have this group on. You guys, this is a long time coming for this project, and I know uh, you all are excited uh, to give it some air. I would imagine that as a as a researcher, uh, which I am not, that um, all the time you spend on the ideas and then figuring out how to synthesize the ideas and, and put them into the world, that... Um, you know, it's just sort of like a, a relief to get this stuff out at a certain point. Um, I, I think that one of the things that is really exciting about this project to me is that it is what um, lots of educators are hearing maybe more about projects and grants that involve an acronym called RPP, right? Which is uh, Research Practice Partnership. And um, I wanted to start there because, uh, and and maybe Rafi, have you talk a little bit about RPP and and why it's so important. Um, and I, I want to get into some of the, the nuts and bolts of how it works. But um, Linking back to my earlier thought about it being sort of a relief to get things out there, I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about um, 
why RPP is unique and uh, potentially m- more exciting as a way of sort of um, engaging researchers and practitioners in work uh, together. Sure. Um, first, just want to thank you for having us, Mark. Um, of course, happy to be here. So, you know, to me as, as a researcher who also has, um, you know, been a practitioner, uh, an educator for uh, most of his career as well, um, research practice partnerships sort of represent um, just what I think is a, a very natural and organic way of working together that really bridges what both of those worlds have to bring to the table. Um, you know, a lot of the time, the way that we've conceptualized um, the relationship between research and practice is that researchers kind of like study stuff or make stuff in labs or test it in the field. And then they're like, okay, we've got it. Like, how do we get it to you know, the practice world? Like, yeah. How do we get them to listen? It's a very um, kind of unidirectional, you know, from researchers to practitioners, even the notion of research translation yeah. is like, you know, researchers have figured something out and practitioners just need to listen or we get them to listen. Yep. And, you know, I think many folks who are advocates of research practice partnerships, both on the research and the practice side, like that's not really the best way to think about it. Um, we know from research on evidence use that that doesn't really result in, you know, taking up of ideas by practitioners. And we also know by looking at a lot of research that often researchers aren't choosing problems that are most relevant to practitioners. Mm. You know, they're like, well, how does this actually like apply? And, you know, research practice partnerships are about, you know, choosing uh, problems that are really important to practice and at the same time, like, provide really rich grounds for generating new foundational insights into, uh, you know, various research areas. In our case, you know, different theories around learning um, for young people and for organizations. Yeah. Um, Dixie, I, I wondered if, um, tell me if this is a, a bridge too far, but, um, you're now at Google and you're working in user experience and, um, unless things have changed, is that still right? And no, that's true. Um, and so when you were working on this, you were working on it um, primarily as a researcher. And I know you in your work as somebody who, in a, in a certain way, has been focused on research practice partnership, sort of their whole, um, their whole career as a researcher in, in, a, in a way. And one of the things I wondered is um, whether that idea of research practice partnership and um, user experience connect for you. I would imagine they certainly did for Google when they hired you. But um, can you talk a little bit about how the practice kind of those two practices relate if they do in any way? Um, yeah, well, it is nice that at Google there's uh, in the user um, experience research uh, world, uh, we have this motto, you know, follow the user and everything else will follow. Uh, yeah. So there's a lot of um, uh, value placed in um, speaking directly to users, spending a lot of time in their context, um, building empathy amongst our uh, team members, our product team members around what users truly need and how they how they naturally do things so that um, whatever we're building can fit within their ecosystem. Um, 
and given that, there's also different ways to really engage with that. You know, you, you can interview somebody and spend a lot of time with them, but not really um, hear what they're saying and mm. um, have that kind of uh, uh, respect and a close listening um, that an RPP uh, sort of methodology um, would naturally um, uh, kind of dictate. So having had this experience and always just, you know, wanting doing my work um, in an RPP style, whether even before I knew that that was a term, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it really, you know, it, it's nice that at Google, there's already the um, uh, value around that. And everyone thinks, you know, it's a great thing for me to constantly go out and constantly want to talk to people and to not want to feel like we've learned everything. Um, it's great that on the surface, every, every, that is a thing that um, uh, I can do freely. And then at the same time, I'm able to uh, kind of, you know, decide what kind of questions I ask, decide um, uh, when I want to bring, go back into the field sometimes by bringing concepts and, and hearing um, and doing co-design, which isn't traditional, but is also a thing, but choosing that to do, choosing to do that more often, let's say. So yeah, it's, um, I think that, uh, and I, I do see that a lot of great researchers, the one that are really able to make impact in the company, do have that also ethos of learning from practitioners, going out to, let's say, you know, nonprofits, people in the community, people who have been working on some issue that we've uh, identified as um, that our product might solve, going out and asking people who've been working on that problem for years, maybe, maybe organizationally speaking, um, to see what they've tried and to see what they've learned. And that just makes us move faster and makes us make the makes the first product that we or the product concept that we design uh just that much better what's really exciting about that and and exciting about about rpp as a, a practice that um is not necessarily a you know as with lots of things that that come and go through um education whether it's as in practice or, or research, um, you know, think, things tend to sort of a, a wave comes through and a lot of times it's not necessarily a new thing, but a, a new way of framing an older thing that was important then and should still be important. Um, and, and here I, you know, the researchers that I have the, uh, good fortune of spending most of my time with are people who care really deeply about, um, the kinds of problems that they're interested in having their research um, make progress on. So, um, so it it feels to a to a, a lay person, somebody who is is kind of watching these two things come together. It feels so important and so um, you know just kind of like uh, palpably the right thing that uh, researchers and practitioners are working very side by side, uh, and, and, um, listening deeply to one another. You, you said, um, that phrase I think is a really great one. Um, so, um, before we go too much further into the project itself, um, 
I, I think it's important that we just talk about the context of the hive and make sure that folks understand kind of the, the context that this work is coming out of. And what I'm going to do is, is anybody who is listening on, um, you know, from a browser, which I know a lot of folks uh, who listen to the show do, uh, maybe while they're working or, or researching other things, if you uh, throw in brokering, dot hiveresearchlab.org um, into your uh, into your browser. That's a way to get directly to the tools that we're talking about um, in this episode. And uh, this is the kind of topic where it may actually be helpful to check out uh, some of the tools and, and browse uh, what's there while we're talking about it. While people are doing that, um, will you... Uh, tell us um, a little bit about the hive and um, and kind of where this work comes out of. I think Rafi may know better how to sort of frame it, but uh, when I was working uh, with um, Hive NYC as a doctoral student, it was a community of nonprofit uh, organizations, um, libraries, uh, you know, museums. Um, community-based organizations that were providing their work, you know, youth development organizations and providing after-school programs, uh, in-school programs to, to support um, young people and uh, youth development. And there was also a, um, I, I guess, Mozilla, MacArthur, and others had come in and created um, sort of a, a structure in which uh, these organizations were able to uh, learn from one another, come together and build community. Um, and uh, I was one of the organizations and um, you were too, Mark, you were at one of the um, kickoff, you know, sort of all day meetings where we were invited to sort of imagine what um, something like Hive could look like. And um, right after that meeting, I decided to go, I, I um, left the organization I was at, the Joan Gans Cooney Center at Sesame Workshop, and I joined NYU as a doctoral student and sort of felt a little like I was kind of leaving that really interesting world behind and I was going to embark on my academic you know, mm. studies. Um, meanwhile, Rafi was sort of on a similar trajectory. Uh, um, he was working at Global Kids and um, his, uh, his boss, um, was there. Um, and, uh, as high was forming, Rafi kind of stayed connected to everyone and he was, um, doing some really good, like early kind of research and mingling with hive members as it was starting to form. Um, and then, uh, we, Rafi and I stayed in touch and at some point, um, he invited me to, um, engage in some, um, research, um, with him, um, with Hive members, um, the one of the funders was trying to understand what um, a good you know research project could look like within the Hive, and they were trying to get some um, information from Hive members as to what uh, would be their most pressing research needs. And mm. so I joined in on that, and that's sort of how I I um, got back into uh, this world. And I'm just so grateful that Rafi reached out to me. <laughs> uh, 
I, I think like that's like, you know, that moment was also a really great uh, thing to understand from the perspective of research practice partnerships, because you know, part of what happened was that um, Chris Lawrence, who is then the director of the network um, at Mozilla and some of the uh, network funders, um, you know, kind of came to us and they didn't say, hey, like, we need you to research this or like, we want to know about that outcome. Um, they actually said, like, we don't really know what research could look like in this network, but we feel like it could be empower, uh, important and like, we feel like it could be powerful. But we want you to talk to members. And so, you know, Dixie and I spent uh, in the summer of 2012, um, you know, three months talking to members, um, you know, having focus groups, sitting down, observing their programs, interviewing them. Um, and really, actually, from that, um, that's, that was the basis of Hive Research Lab, um, of this kind of long-term uh, research practice partnership uh, that, you know, was formed then and now this project came out of that really focused on a couple of really big areas about how the network learns as a collective of organizations, but then also how youth within the network learn across its institution. So the network that learns on one hand and um, a network for learning on the other, as uh, Elise Eidman Adal of the National Writing Project used to call it. Mm. And that really formed, that process came out of members. Those topics came out of members and formed the basis for you know, long trajectories of research that both Dixie and I formed our dissertations out of, but then that we also did a lot of writing on in the network for uh, for a number uh, of years. So, can you recap the um, those the major areas that Hive Research Lab was looking into that resulted in the practice briefs? Sure. So, we had two major research areas as part of Hive Research Lab. One was on what we called uh, networked innovation. And this is really about understanding how are these organizations uh, learning from one another as they explore new ways of teaching and learning with digital media um, around youth development. So how are they collaborating? What are the, what are partnerships look like? How do ideas travel through the network? And then the other one was on youth uh, trajectories and pathways. Um, and this one was on really understanding what was the youth experience um, in interest development across settings. Um, not just at a single hive organization, but following young people for a really long time. Um, and, you know, it was really that second area that, that led to this larger project on uh, brokering and youth pathways. And I think Dixie can speak uh, to really what that story was and how we went from looking broadly at a question of youth pathways to uh, really focusing on this practice of brokering. We wanted to really, you know, based on what members were telling us, um, uh, we, we learned and we also recognized this as well. And we felt, you know, um, very excited to uh, pursue this further as well. Um, but we learned from members that it was really important to know how their programs, all the, all the time and energy they put into helping young people, um, whether that was really making, uh, a kind of lasting impact. And one of the compelling ways um, I heard members tell us that when we were doing this summer, this research scan before Hive Research Lab really um, got off the ground and was created, um, was they wanted to know, well, what happens after a young person leaves my program? Um, did they continue, 
being interested in this thing? Mm. Were they able to somehow turn this into, um, you know, did they communicate this with their with their teachers or people at school? And were they able to find another way to engage with it? Um, you know, it would be really, it's really important to people who work with young people to know that, you know, it's not about them, not only about the program, but it's about helping young people um, uh, find, you know, more about who they are, making, you know, having a, a better, maybe uh, 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 sense of how to pursue their interests and their goals. Um, so those types of questions became the basis for a one day meeting with um, Hive, Hive members. And uh, we asked, you know, folks to kind of expand upon that. And we talked about all sorts of things. And we also did, you know, uh, some quick designing of concepts around this idea of supporting youth pathways um, in terms of, and it, you know, and, and I think some of the problems we identified uh, kind of ranged from like minutia of like, and it's not minutia, but it was, it was things like nitty gritty of how do you just even um, collect data around who checks into programs. So there mm. was like this attendance checker idea. Um, there were some other ones around like, uh, can we build, can we help these young people who are at these different programs um, who never go to another Hive org, let's say, and try their programs? Can we help them foster a sense of community just like the adult members of the Hive have fought, have have the sense of community through monthly meetups and and calls and, and things like that. Yeah. So that was great. And then um, after the meeting was over, just looking over some of the field notes, looking over a lot of the responses uh, to prompts that that members had kind of like uh, uh, given us through you know writing. We I, you know we have lots of ether pads. We had a lot of ether pads back in the day. Uh, I noticed that there was another really interesting theme which was around um, actively connecting young people to the next thing and also um, wanting to, and, and also things like um, issues with being able to connect kids to the next thing yeah. or how do kids know what the next thing is, things like that. So uh, we realized that was a really interesting question to um, dig into and, it kind of is where the rubber meets the road. If we can't solve that that connection issue, um, we can't do all the other things around knowing, you know, if young people are, uh, you know, um, enjoying better, you know, better outcome, let's say. So, uh, so yeah, we pursued, we started to um, gather information around that theme and we started to circulate um, that insight. Uh, amongst members and it seemed to really resonate. Yeah. Uh, it definitely resonated for me. Uh, in addition to, I think one of the, one of the things that I've, um, kind of gleaned over the years of, uh, reading research and applying research and, and, um, so being, being a consumer and I guess a, a part of research as a, on the practitioner side is, is, um, in a weird way, how important the marketing of some of these ideas is. And, and I actually, I find brokering to be a pretty brilliant, um, way to market the idea, um, that you're after. Um, 
so it really resonated with me and and um i think in uh, of the members of this network in new york um i i realized that too and i think a lot of that had to do with um with the term um did you guys find that at all i mean uh, it, go ahead I, I, it it's really it's funny you say that mark because there was actually you know there was a, a bit of controversy yeah. um over over the term um partly because it has a little bit more of these kind of like businessy overtones yeah. of like brokering a deal you know which obviously you know this moment in our uh culture uh you know brokering <laughs> deals doesn't fly with uh quite a quite a lot of folks um but you know for for us part of what it was was that um you know there was all this talk in the network for so many years about youth pathways, youth pathways, youth pathways. Hmm. And it was always really abstract. Yeah. It was like this kind of like, oh yeah, there are these pathways, but it didn't actually give youth pathways as an idea, didn't give educators anything to do. Right. right. It was the problem is that youth pathways is an outcome. And what we realized with um uh centering on on these moments of actively connecting young people, that's a that's an action. That's youth development practice. Brokering was the way we wanted to talk about this actual uh, action that leads to the pathway outcome, because that's actually what we can actually be empowered on as educators to figure out how to do it better. Um, whereas, like, you don't do pathways better, uh, you know, you get you, you help to reach that outcome better uh, for young people by brokering or by connecting, and you know, within the range of like. You know, think you know, terms we could have used there. We talked about bridging, connecting. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think now uh, some folks at the Connected uh, Learning Lab and uh, UC Irvine talk about sponsorship. Mm. Um, we just thought it was really specific. You know, uh, connecting had all these other valences um, and implications for folks. Um, bridging also could be more abstract. Brokering had this very kind of like almost you know just very concrete element to yeah. it. Um, but I think what's, in, you know, part of what's important to, you know, to your, your broader point there of the, you know, for lack of a better word, marketing is the ideas around uh, brokerage, you know, came from the community and came from this design charrette that Dixie talked about. But then we worked uh, collaboratively with the network over uh, six or eight months uh, doing meetings about uh, the idea and getting input and, and then we started to draft up a, a white paper and we actually had, you know, over, um, I believe it was uh, 60 organizations from across the network that at some point or another contributed to this collaboratively developed white paper about brokering youth pathway opportunities. Yeah, so and impressive. to me, that's really powerful because you can, you know, it's almost like the marketing was in the process. Yeah. Uh, well, and it comes back to that, that point of RPP in, in, the sense that, um, you know, where, where I think the power of the term comes together with the, the system of practice, um, is that you had all these practitioners who I, I think it's a fairly safe generalization to say that a lot of most practitioners sort of look at research and, and don't necessarily identify themselves as having, um, it's not a place for them to participate and uh, that you had identified both an idea and a term for it that really linked to an identity for folks that uh, motivated them to, 
feel like it was a space to participate, I think. Um, and, and, you know, uh, obviously there was lots of encouragement and many, many emails and, and all of that. But, um, I think that that's a really powerful thing. I, I wanted to, um, uh, before we move on, I just wanted to mention yeah. that the term brokering, uh, also, uh, partly came from some of the literature that we were reading. So Bridget Barron, um, and her team, uh, published a paper and talked about, uh, one of the parental learning roles um, mm. that parents can play is as um, to serve as a learning broker. Yeah. So we also wanted to um, uh, connect to that um, idea. And that also was interesting and helpful for us so that we were able to circulate this amongst other um, researchers that were, that had, that were knew this literature, but had it maybe, I've uh, done a lot of work recently, but having us come out and talk about it um, through the work in the hive um, kind of generated some renewed interest there as well. Yeah. Um, so, yes, uh, citing our sources for sure. These ideas and and I guess going back to the idea that these these uh waves sort of come come through research and and go and and the stuff that really matters um tends to stick or take new forms and um that's a really good point um I, that's actually a, also a great transition to what i was going to ask um chris and kylie you both have had a role at a very high level on this project of sort of guiding um and, you know and i th- i think in your role part of um, part of the responsibility is seeing a project like this and, and, um, being a kind of advisor to a project like this means, you know, you are of a, um, you are of, uh, sufficient vintage in the, uh, in the space of, uh, of research to be able to make some connections to the broader questions that um, this kind of at a very micro level is um, is getting to. And I wonder for you two, Chris and Kylie, if you can just speak to um, what questions when you heard about this project that you were most excited um, about it being potentially a really uh, interesting lever to sort of uh, crack open? Yeah, well, our, our job is just to say yes, right? <laughs> you know, so when you, have, <laughs> when you have a Rafi and a Dixie kind of come through the door with these great ideas and and um, just clear connections to the, um, the New York City Hive community. Um, and then you know, as, as we're working at sort of this academic, you know, you talked about the research practice partnership, how do we start to, to, um, uh, play that balance? Um, so what are the things that the practitioners are asking for? What are, what is it that we've seen in the prior literature? And so, so how do we start to build a bridge and to create a language? And, you know, just like they were talking about like choosing the term brokering, how do we find something that feels, um, authentic to the community and resonates with the research literature. And so a lot of times this work, you know, you have to hybridize on a lot of work that's out there, mm-hmm. pull on new types of, of um, literatures. And so, um, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not for the faint of heart researchers that are willing to kind of travel in some new directions um, <clears throat> and try some new things and, and really kind of be open to what comes next. Yeah, and if I could add, I would I would say uh, you know within the space of understanding how people learn, 
uh, from the research community, there are a couple sort of major insights that um, have been hard for us to act on appropriately. And one of those insights is that learning happens all day and everywhere and that kids learn across different spaces. But most of the research that's done is um, for a lot of practical reasons focused on a particular program or a particular context in which learning takes place. And then also, um, you know, we, we have this challenge of trying to uh, come up with findings that are uh, true enough to be useful. Uh, and sometimes that means that, um, you know, it doesn't generalize as much as a, a researcher might hope. Uh, it means trying to take those findings and put them into a context where it really makes sense. And so I think as, uh, as this project got off the ground, one of the most exciting things was being able to say, we're going to sit right in the middle between a group of people who understand why the research questions are important and who want to pursue them, a group of people who um, understand why the challenges of doing this uh, in practice are hard, and not just within one organization, but across organizations, mm. and to try to um, get all those people on the same page working together to um, make headway. And I, I, I think one of the best things about RPPs is that they've reinforced um, uh, not only shared values, um, and I, I do believe that, that good research always should involve shared values. There should be uh, respect and mutuality anytime researchers and practitioners work together. But the RPP tends to involve also a lot of shared activities where it's not handing things off, but it's doing together. Um, and one of the great things about this project was the way in which the research was um, uh, as as uh, Rafi and Dixie have written, uh, working in the open so that uh, a practitioner could kind of see what the researchers were up to and what they were thinking about and chat with them all along the way at many points along the process. Um, and then also help shape what, um, what way that research came out into the community. So maybe a journal article isn't the best way to learn about uh, what Dixie's dissertation says. Mm. And so... Uh, Making a brokering toolkit is an example of the kind of thing that we've learned how to do uh, from partnering with practitioners. Yeah. So, um, Rafi, I wonder if you could just sort of take us through um, the toolkit. And uh, I think that there are 11 practice briefs, if I'm mm -hmm. remembering correctly. And um, so, so maybe you can talk in tandem about uh, both uh, what people will find when they um, go to brokering.hiveresearchlab.org. Um, what will they find there? And um, what were some of the, the kind of, if I'm a practitioner and, and I go there, what are some of the ideas that, that might feel um, empowering to me that I might want to really dig into and read a little bit more about? Sure. So the, <clears throat> the Brokering Youth Pathways Toolkit, um, first to say is the result of about two and a half years of collaborative activity directly on this problem between Hive Research Lab, our team, and the Hive New York City Learning Network that we've been talking about. And we had an open process where we almost like put out a call and we're like, hey, we're working on this problem. Who wants to like, actively really dig in uh, onto this? And so we had three amazing design partners. Um, full disclosure, Mouse was one of them. Another organization, Scope of Work, 
which focuses on um, addressing reflective representation in the creative industry mm. for youth of color. Um, and then a third, Beam Center, which is more of a kind of maker, hands-on uh, learning, uh, kind of crafting and creativity-focused uh, organization in Brooklyn. Mm. Um, so with Mouse, Beam Center, and Scope of Work, we actively designed a lot of new um, uh, approaches to trying to uh, foster brokering moments um, between uh, educators and youth and solve different kind of problems related to it. Um, and then we also had a, a, a working group in the network um, that had a lot of organizations that participated in it over the course of a couple of years um, that were kind of there as a sounding board <clears throat> and also brought to the table ideas about how they do things in their organizations. So that was sort of how we got to this toolkit. Mm. In the toolkit itself, we've got really kind of uh, you know three main things. Like one is kind of a guiding framework around brokering, and this is just sort of a, a, a you know a bit of theory around like what exactly is this problem? How does it work? Why is it uh, important? And um, how should we think about it? especially from a youth development uh, standpoint. And that's kind of looking a little bit at the dynamics uh, involved in a brokering moment. The second is a series of reports. Um, some of them are more you know, really immediate research reports. One is a, a case study that uh, we did with Mouse on kind of our, our ongoing set of design experiments that we did with you mm-hmm. um, around brokering. Um, a third is uh, you know uh, the kind of the white paper that we mentioned before on just the big ideas around brokering. And then the, 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 a lot of the heart of it is in these practice briefs Um, and practice briefs, you know, for us are just a way to distill down um, into just a couple of pages, maybe, you know, I think they're anywhere between three and five pages, these briefs, Um, you know, one idea that's practical. So, you know, it might be something like, you know, all right, all, um, almost all youth development programs that are kind of creative and media focused, they have uh, end of year capstone events where they bring uh, you know youth together to share about their projects. And in New York, we've got a Moticon that I know you you know we've, we've organized for many years. Mm. Been involved in, I've been involved in, you've been involved in. And you know, how do you use these big end of year events not just as celebrations, but also as stepping stones to new pathway opportunities? Yeah. Usually. They take place at the, you know, at the intersection between the spring and the summer. So, like, you know, we've got kids completing programs and, you know, maybe they've got an opportunity over the summer. Maybe they don't. So this that's one brief that says, like, how do we rethink those capstone events? Um, we've got another brief that's based on the work we did with Scope of Work. That's about um, more about uh, identifying good uh uh, early workplace uh, settings, mm-hmm. uh, companies that uh, would be kind of safe and comfortable environments for you know young people of color in creative and technology fields. Because what we worked on with them was you know this issue that you know not all you know like internship settings are really super productive for youth from you know non dominant backgrounds and communities that have been disinvested in. And so that brief kind of sums up. Uh, a bunch of uh, kind of uh, you know, rules of thumb that we uh, had uh, came out of the research with them about what are the kind of key characteristics. Of that's so important, and yeah. and that's that's the third one. The uh, that's finding fit. 
That one is uh, that one's the tenth one. It's uh, an equity orientation to vetting early workplace ah, settings. Yes, um, it's so yeah. important. I love that one. Yeah. So you know, there uh, we try to be as practical as possible, and I think for different organizations that have different missions, there's different kinds of things. You know, for some organizations, they might have a lot of programs uh, within their own organization, but they're disconnected. Right. There's not actually active pathways between them. So we've got one brief that's on what we call internal pathways and how to create moments of leveling up within your own program ecology if you're an out of school organization. Hmm. Um, that might not be applicable to all organizations. All organizations. Some might only have you know, one or two programs and there isn't an opportunity for, for that. So we tried to kind of get a range of, uh, of uh, types of practices that could fit different organizations in this space. Can you talk a little bit about the format, Rafi? So uh, practice, what, what will people um, find if they download a practice brief? Um, are we talking about a giant volume with lots of scary citations and, um, and language that's too, too complex to read on a subway ride? Oh gosh, we hope not. No, I mean, so, you know, like I said, these can be anywhere from like, you know, two, three pages to six or seven pages uh, at, at longest. And, um, you know, a lot of what's in there is like, first we just address, you know, like kind of what's the issue that we're talking about. Um, you know, so it might, it might just be, uh, you know, like if we take the example of uh, um, one is called not just a teacher, also a connector. And it's really about how do we get educators and out of school to, start thinking of themselves as brokers. And so, you know, we kind of introduce them. We say like, okay, well, traditionally in youth development, you know, educators think of themselves, uh, you know, often as, you know, bearers of knowledge, as also emotional supports and mentors, but maybe they don't always think about themselves as um, people that are pathway connectors, as learning brokers. We just, we just introduced that, you know, got a couple of paragraphs on it. We talk about different challenges to um, how you might like solve that problem. Uh, we then share a bunch of strategies around how do you attend to equity issues uh, with, a, with regards to a given problem we're talking about in a brief. And then, of course, the heart of it is, like, here's some approaches. Um, you know, for the one that I just mentioned, uh, you know, if you're an organizational leader in your onboarding process, you know, introducing brokering as a part of the role uh, for new staff that they think about themselves as, as brokers as well as knowledge builders. Um, so, we, you know, Keep those, you know, approaches like bulleted lists. We've got some reflection questions at the end of each brief. And then, uh, you know, as appropriate, there's, you know, references and citations that people really want to go down that rabbit hole can do that. Great. Guys, we only had a brief um, time this morning to talk about uh, the toolkit, but I'm so glad we got to do it um, for... Folks who dig into the toolkit and uh, read briefs and and want to sort of uh, talk back to the briefs um, or ask questions, is there a way to do that? Yeah, you can always uh, uh, contact uh, contact us. Um, I believe we still have a uh, a general. Uh, Kind of contact. Uh, certainly, all of our emails are are pretty uh, easily uh, Googleable. Um, but I, if you go to the just the main HiveResearchLab.org uh, website, 
there's a contact page there. You can pop in a note and one of us will reply to you. Terrific. Kylie, Chris, any, any, uh, anything I didn't ask that, um, that I should have? Well, one thing I'll throw out there is uh, I'm very um, grateful that we were able to work in such an unconventional way. And a big part of why that happened was uh, a couple of funders who took a chance on this. Um, I think it really helped that the uh, trend towards having research practice partnerships was uh, growing and uh, that the request to do this kind of work was coming directly from the Hive practitioners. Uh, but we were supported with um, a lot of flexibility and, and financial support through uh, the Spencer Foundation, uh, the New York Community Trust uh, via MacArthur and um, Mozilla Foundations and uh, Capital One at one point threw in some support. And so, you know, one of the things that I'll, I'll just sort of say is um, I think a lot of practitioners and a lot of researchers, they want to stay in their lane. Um, and sometimes it's a little scary to, to step out of your lane, to, uh, to partner in ways that are unfamiliar to you, but, uh, it's incredibly valuable and we were incredibly lucky to have the support of not only, uh, all of our partners, but also our funders. More shout outs. I appreciate that. Uh, and this work doesn't get done without, um, uh, these institutions, uh, these researchers, these practitioners, all in cooperation, and and um, so uh, this is this is a huge win for uh, you all, as well as a, a um, you know a, a boon for practitioners in the sense that this toolkit I think um, is going to be really really helpful, and I hope uh, leads to a lot more work. Guys, thank you so much for joining, and uh, thanks so much for the work. Thank you, Mark. Really appreciate thank it. You, Mark. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in Episode Zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org.